what you really want, the most important thing to do is to make sure you have at least one reward that people can win by making between one and three referrals. So that's uh, the hook. It's the thing that everyone is going to see that and think, okay, if I go and share this on Twitter, if I just click once to share in a WhatsApp group or whatever it is, I'm going to make two referrals. So I'm going to be guaranteed to get that thing and that reward. So that's the most important one. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today, I'm super excited. I have Louis Nichols here, the co-founder of Sparkloop. And the reason why I know about him is because I'm a user of the product and I'm obsessed. And you actually were answering customer support. And then I just was like, hey, can I just get you on the podcast to talk about what you're doing? And so you're kind enough to be here. But Louis, thanks for coming on today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, Jim, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to, to be here. Before we even dive in, let's talk about what is Sparkloop, just so people know what the product is. Yeah, really simple way of explaining Sparkloop would be to say, we are a referral tool for email or for newsletters. So basically, pretty much every business out there has an email list of some kind, a customer email list, a newsletter, something like that. They email someone regularly. And what we do is we make it really easy for your email contacts to get a unique link. They can share that link with their friends, with their colleagues, on the internet, uh, the local park, wherever they want to. And when people sign up via that link, it's tracked to the original subscriber, the original email contact, and you can give that person points or rewards or prizes or whatever for sharing with their friends, basically. Wow, that's amazing. And you have some really impressive customers as, as clients that, that we'll get into. But first, I actually want to get tactical because this idea of referral marketing, word of mouth marketing, as someone that works with a lot of high growth startups it's the companies that can unlock this that really go to that next level. When you turn customers into marketers, it just becomes something that's really impactful. So if I'm launching a referral program today, what's some advice you could give to, whether it's like an e-commerce startup, a SaaS company, or even someone with a course, what should they think about when they're doing a referral program and any examples to put more color on it? Yeah. So, I mean, there are lots of different kinds of referral program, I guess. And it's a fuzzy definition, right? Is an ambassador program a referral program? Is an affiliate program a referral program? It's all sort of the same concept. So on a super high level, there are probably three or four things that are important. So the first factor, in my opinion, would be how often you can ask someone to share, to make referrals. If you can ask them every day, that's obviously going to be more impactful than if you can only ask them once a week or once a month or maybe once every four years or something. So the number of times you can ask them, super important. Then the value of the incentive to that person to share. So you can reward them with an extrinsic incentive, which is what Sparkloop helps with. Give them a reward once they uh, make one referral or make two referrals and so on. But there's also an intrinsic incentive, which is super important, which is even if you weren't going to be rewarded for sharing this, why would you do it anyway? And trying to improve that makes a big difference. 
And then the, I guess the, the the final thing that's important or really important that you can't really influence is just how many people that that person, that user of yours, that customer could even share with in the first place. So if you're in a, a business that's really super broad, like uh, the Morning Brew newsletter, for example, at the beginning, that was primarily college kids who were signing up. And each of those college kids would, they would have 200 friends or 500 friends who they could share the newsletter with. And that's great. That means everyone's going to share with 10, 20 people potentially. Whereas what we've seen is we have some people using Sparkloop who, we have one guy using Sparkloop who runs a newsletter for single practice lawyers, uh, American lawyers who live abroad. And that is like a ridiculously small niche. Each of them probably only knows like three other people in the world who are similar to them who would want to be on that list. So kind of the, the size of the, the catchment area is super important as well. That's really helpful. It, it's very dependent on your business model and the customer you're going after. And when people think of referral programs, usually they're thinking, oh, refer a friend, get 20% off, refer a friend, get a month free. If I'm trying to think through an incentive to make my referral program really work, what are some creative things you've seen work that you would want to have people try? Yeah. So the thing that's happening with referral programs, there's there's two big trends I think that people need to be really aware of. The first is that people don't like, or people are becoming more and more wary of that like first wave of referral programs that you saw with Airbnb and Revolut and things like that, where your friend actually has to, the person you're referring actually has to pay money. They have to buy something in order for you to get the reward. And people don't like that anymore. They don't like knowing their friends knowing that they've made money off them, in effect. It just seems to work a lot worse than it did about six or seven years ago. So that's one trend that's super important. And the other trend is just there are more and more referral programs out there now. And people are defaulting to the same boring things. It's a month free. It's 10% off your next order. It's swag, right? Like a t-shirt or a hoodie or a mug or something. Those are like the popular ones. Those are the ones that everyone do. And they just don't capture people's imagination anymore. So what I would recommend is really investing some time, and it doesn't have to be money, but it should be like time and creativity into thinking about like the backstory for your rewards and making it something that people notice, something that they go, that's cool, or that's funny. And then they almost want to talk about it because it's, it's interesting to them. So that's definitely something I would see. Like the number of SaaS like founders I see who just, they start their business and then they go, oh, we'll just have the give one, get one a month free kind of plan, which is like the, the brain dead default. And I'm convinced it would work so much better if they did something just funny and crazy and completely free. Like for example, instead of you getting a free month, every time you do this, we will we'll send a letter to someone we don't like saying we really love them or something like that. Just something completely stupid. You can unlock a free badge in your dashboard. And when you click on the, the badge or click on that button, then confetti shoots out or something. I'm sure that would work way better for most of those referral programs, but no one ever does it. I agree. You become so numb to all the like campaigns that are out there. You need to do something that gets their attention. One of your clients is James Clear that uses this, who's an author, wrote Atomic Habits. I believe he, what's his referral program that he does? Because I believe his is pretty powerful. Yeah, James is a super interesting case. So he has one of the largest newsletters on the, especially without a, a massive like corporation behind it. 
And what James is all about, as far as we can, when we talk to him, what he's all about is minimizing the time that he has to spend on the referral program and also the cost as well, right? Because he doesn't monetize his list. He doesn't even do advertising in his email. His email actually costs him, costs him money. So he's all about finding a reward that really doesn't take him any time to give and also doesn't cost him anything to give. And what he's done in the past is he used to do a, an extra monthly secret edition of the newsletter, which worked really well and was free. But again, he had to write that every month, which is something that, I mean, it's not a terrible thing, right? But he really prides himself on good content. So that was becoming you know, something that was quite a lot of work. So he switched that out to a just a single PDF download, which I think is, I think it's a, a downloadable of some of the best books that he's ever read or some of the best things he's ever seen content-wise. And that works really well. I mean, it's, uh, it's not one of those referral programs that's going to get your list growing 300 or 500% faster. It's not heavily gamified. It's just one simple reward. And he has to spend literally no time on it and literally no money. Yeah, the idea of exclusive content or something that is a download so it's scalable for him but then it's pretty appetizing for the the customer or the subscriber base that's a really good one that's something we're, we're testing spark loop and we are doing some exclusive content and that has worked better than just doing something for free or something for a discount because i think you hit on it early on it's use the imagination get their attention and something like that, I think, is, is just more interesting. That's really helpful advice. So don't just do swag. Do something interesting. Yeah, swag as a rule of thumb, I'll just say quickly. Unless people are asking to buy swag from you, they're, or they're making their own swag if, if, with your brand on it, if neither of those is true, swag probably isn't going to be one of the better options. You're much better off doing something based on exclusivity or urgency. So you'll get access to this thing earlier than everyone else. You will get access to this thing that no one else can unlock unless they make three referrals, for example. Yeah, that's really good. And knowing like how many people you should be having them refer, like with, with James or your other customers, like how many people do they ask you to refer until you unlock the incentive that they give? Yeah. So what we normally tend to say is that there are a couple of different levels that are super important. So... What you really want, the most important thing to do is to make sure you have at least one reward that people can win by making between one and three referrals. So that's uh, the hook. It's the thing that everyone is going to see that and think, okay, if I go and share this on Twitter, if I just click once to share in a WhatsApp group or whatever it is, I'm going to make two referrals. So I'm going to be guaranteed to get that thing and th that reward. So that's the most important one. And then you probably also want more like aspirational rewards that people can work to or that people with larger audiences of their own will think, I have 20,000 followers on Twitter. So sure, I'm going to get 50 referrals, for example. And those are the ones that maybe um, like actually have a monetary value attached to them. But the most important one is that, that referral reward for between one and three referrals. That's really good advice. Almost giving a tiered program. I believe when Harry's, the subscription Razor brand launched, they had a nice tiered program from inviting three friends up to 50, where I think you got a year supply of blades or something, but that's a really good call out. I'd love to take a step back because you have a really impressive kind of background. You've done a lot of things. And I, I love approaching businesses from this framework of coming up with the idea, getting traction, and then growing. So how did you come up with the idea for Sparkloop? Yeah, so I, I would say the idea for Spark Group came mainly from my co-founder to give some background to the like how it came about. Basically, I had sold my previous startup a couple of months before, 
And I was sitting around not really knowing what to do. And when you do that, you fall into doing some consulting. And then that turns into like more specific consulting and, and more specific and so on. And eventually I was like helping some pretty big newsletters with like growth, like conversion rate consulting, basically marketing stuff. And I'd known Man Manny for a while. And one of my clients, big newsletter basically said, look, we've seen what Morning Brew is doing in their newsletter with their own custom built referral program. We've tested out all these different software solutions that are like generic tools on the market. They just don't work for this. It's impossible to make it happen. It would involve so much coding and even then wouldn't really do what we want it to do. Do you know anyone who has a, a tool like this or who's working on something? So I knew that Manny was working on a generic referral tool that he'd been building for a while. He had quite a lot of customers. It was going quite well. So I reached out to him and I said, Manny, I've got this client here. He's trying to do this thing. I know you've built this really good referral tool. Is there any way you can make it do this like slight variation basically on, on what his, his tool was doing? And he looked at it and said, no, unfortunately, you can't really do that with our tool, but you're the third person who's asked this week. So maybe there's something here. Maybe we should take a look at it together. And originally, I think it was the idea was more that would be something that would be built into his original platform that he was working on. But as we dug, dug more into it, we realized, yeah, this needs to be completely separate in terms of marketing and like the dashboard and the product itself is, is completely different. So let's just carve this out and, and work on it together. So I, I love seeing people that are doing consulting or an agency where they see a problem that they can then solve with software. And the fact that you had a really good friend that was attached to that is a pretty nice head start. So you're getting feedback from people wanting this. So you're seeing demand. What are those next phases? Because early on, you talked about you doing this part-time. What are those kind of baby steps you take to really validate this to get traction? Yeah. And I mean, that's totally true. So I've always at the company I'm working at or on or by doing consulting, I will always stumble across the next five ideas that I think I want to work on. And normally I end up like following one of them. So I think the, the, the best way to come up with really good business ideas is not to try and do business ideas, but just to, to go and work with interesting people and try and be helpful to them. And if you care about them and you really understand their business, then you're going to notice a whole load of things that you can improve with software or with whatever, with products. When it comes to like the next steps, I think I, I don't really like the idea of validation. I think validation gives you like a false sense of security. It's you're just trying to find like that proof that everything's going to be okay. And I think you just have to accept that everything might not be okay and take a de-risking approach instead. So what will often happen is that people will say, I'm going to put a wait list up and collect email addresses. And that's validation that people want it. And obviously that's not true. I think people are cottoning onto that. So the next thing that people seem to be doing like nowadays, founders, they will tend to go out there and they will ask for prepayment. And that's a bit better. People are a bit less likely to prepay for something if they actually don't need it at all. But what happens is people will want to support you and you're super enthusiastic and you have good friends who will want to support you. And you're only asking them normally for $50 or $100 or something up front. And most people have quite a few friends who like you enough and want to support your journey enough to give you $50 just to make you feel good, even if they don't actually need your thing. So what I like to do is I like to try and if possible, if it works with the product, I like to try and do it manually. So without actually having to build any software and to see are they willing to like, are the results good? Are they willing to pay for the results at least? And if I can't do that or in tandem with that, 
what I'm doing is yes, asking in some cases for pre for prepayment, but more importantly, I'm trying to get them to buy in. So I'm putting together a plan of action with them about not just, okay, you pay now. And at some point in the future, you can use the software, but you pay now. And on this concrete date, we are going to do exactly this process of steps together to get you started. And you're actually going to implement it on this day. And then a week later, we're going to check back. And it's at that point that they start saying, actually, maybe I don't have the three hours in, in March to implement this. I'm super busy. Yeah, I don't know if I can actually get my boss to, to sign off on that or whatever it is. Those are really good call outs on validation because it can be a false sense of hope. It's, oh, we've got a thousand people on the wait list. This is going to work. It's, it's really all that means is people gave you an email address. And I think even the your call out on prepayment, that is a good signal, but you want people to experience the problem you're solving, the thing that you're going to deliver. And another important call out is doing it manually. Is that so you're not investing too much time and building it out, which could take a really long time, but just trying to prove that concept and that you're on the right track? Yeah. I mean, it's testing whether you can get results that they care about. So in nearly every product, I think, unless you have a lot of investor money behind you, I think the challenge is never, can you build it? The challenge is, can you sell it? And will people be happy enough with the results to stick around. And for that reason, my approach is always to try and de-risk as much as possible up front. So the risk isn't in, can you actually build the software so they can go do this themselves? The risk is, can you just sell it to them and get the results and are they happy to keep paying for the most of the risk at least? Yeah, especially with the software product, it's about retention. It's about that lifetime value. And that's what you want to prove. And you also want to, you want to work out what you should be building, right? Anybody with enough time who is a good programmer could build, let's say, like the anti-fraud component of Sparkloop. There is nothing there that is, I mean, we have clever people working on it, really clever people, but there's nothing there that is impossible for anyone else to replicate. But there's no way they could replicate it without spending time with customers first, a lot of time, understanding exactly what they need. And if you're doing things manually for them, while you're spending time with the customer understanding exactly what they need. So you end up building the right thing. Yeah, that's really good. And so you're doing this, you're doing this in a manual fashion. When do you go all in? And I believe, have you all raised a little bit of funding? Were you going all in before you raised money or after you raised money? Yeah, so we, I think the, the trouble was we both had other projects that we were working on that we had you know, committed to full-time in effect. And we didn't want to just drop everything and drop our prior commitments to go and work on Sparkloop. So we worked on it on the side until we felt that there is really something here. There are people who are really interested in this. The, the growth trajectory is very good. The opportunity is very good. The competitors are pretty weak. This is something we really enjoy doing and we enjoy working together. Most importantly, we hadn't really worked together before. And that's, I think, something always to be a bit, bit cautious about. So we decided to go, I think, full-time probably like six or seven months after we started like first noodling on stuff together, I guess. And... Yeah, it was, I think it was just a combination of we saw the opportunity, we saw that we liked working together, um, we saw that we were a really good fit for it. And we we actually raised, we didn't really raise money. <laughs> Basically, we closed a partnership with, with an ESP, with ConvertKit, an email service provider. Yeah, and I mean, being able to have, when you think of growth, being able to use partnership as a growth channel to leverage their distribution channel, getting an ESP like ConvertKit has to take you to a whole nother level because all of a sudden, you're almost their referral tool of choice. As you think of the things that 
you know, as we go to this phase of idea traction growth and you, you're really starting to put your foot on the gas, what are those key drivers of growth for you all? Has that partnership been pretty instrumental or is it just word of mouth because you have a superior product? Yeah, it's difficult to say how much of a, an impact that has had. I mean, it's definitely been helpful, but also at the same time, I mean, there's a reason that they decided to partner with us. And that was because a lot of their big customers were using Sparkloop anyway, right? And paying for us directly. So it's definitely helped, but I don't think it's like fundamentally, I wouldn't look back in five years and say, oh, Sparkloop has a fundamentally different or better outcome because of like the, the, the partnership, for example. I think what's more important for us is like, I take a very like methodical approach to, to growth. And I really think about the, the loops involved and Big ones for us have been just like Sparkloop is an inherently viral product. Uh, people use it in their newsletters. All of their subscribers see it. They interact with it. And obviously, everyone who has like a newsletter is on other newsletters and reading them. So they will see, oh, that's cool. How do they do that? How can I do that? And then they will come and find us as well. So I think the core of it is obviously having a very good product or the best product, which I'm, I'm very confident that we do in this space. But at the same time, it's about having, you know, the word of mouth and the, the partners and those kind of loops that will drive growth. You've done a lot of things. You've worked with a lot of different companies. What are some half-baked startup ideas you have? These could be like big ideas or they could be small one-off ideas that you wish either existed in the world or you're like, oh, I'd love to start that next. Yeah, good question. I personally think there is, I think the online course space is a space where there could be a lot more done. I'm not sure exactly what, but I feel like there is not very much good tooling out there for online courses. And I think that's something that will be, as online courses grow, I think that's something where people will be doing a lot more interesting stuff. A couple that I tried and did reasonably well on and then just couldn't continue with because I had like other bigger projects that I was working on. I think if I were like to start again now, I would probably try to do something that was more local. I think the classic advice, like people have tried to go out and do something that is big and broad because the internet is a massive place. So there's guaranteed to be a lot of people out there who want to, to buy from you. I think everyone is competing in that arena. So I would be going hyper local and I would be doing something like, especially if you're in a country that's not the US or not one of the main cities in the US. I would be trying to do like the the local flower delivery or I would be doing like one that like worked really well for me that on day one and two months later, I was already at 10K in, in MRR was say like simply just like a photographer booking uh, solution where basically if you are a like a company, you need photographers that you, you need images, custom images all the time for like your local, like your internal newsletter, your customer newsletter for the website, for new hires, all that kind of stuff. But it's really difficult as a company to book a photographer because you have an approved list and normally they're super expensive. So like the whole arbitrage is just like finding okay photographers who still need like new bookings, art students and people like that, and matching them up with these these companies that can expense like $500 on a credit card, but they can't afford like $5,000 for the, the two hours of like professional photography work that they would otherwise have to, to buy. So that kind of thing, I think, is is super interesting, the local stuff. Yeah, I, I agree, especially if you can go into a market where it's a little antiquated or a little old school, where you can use what you know about digital marketing and technology to have an unfair advantage. And so it's, it's like photography solutions in Zurich, but you're able to do something that's, hey, we can 
be anywhere in 48 hours or we can turn it around in seven to 10 days or, or something that has that extra edge. The other thing that I like is as the market is changing, more people are working from home, what are local services that might be more relevant if it's like help overhaul your home office or prove your video and audio setup in your home office in Seattle or in Zurich or, or wherever you are. And what's interesting, those ideas are simple. Not doesn't mean that they're easy, but they're simple. So if you can pull them off, I, I think it could be a, a really nice business model. But yeah, I think those ideas are very interesting. It's almost like which category would you want to settle on that would be the right one? Yeah, I mean, I think it's which people do you like and which people do you don't understand as well, right? Because all I, I love that the local, like the idea of the setting up like a Zoom studio uh, for people for work from home, for example, in a local area. I, I love that idea. I love like the whole like local newsletter space, for example, I think is super interesting. Like there are so many, there's such a big opportunity there to be a like 21st century modern local media company, the kind that like younger people, like 20s, 30s, 40s even, would want to to read and consume. There are very few people doing a really good job of that. Some of the bigger cities have them. But there are enough people in those like smaller second, third tier cities that you could make a really nice business without doing too much work on that kind of thing. And it would be a really fun business to run. So I might be doing that. One other thing that I will say as well is I think is a super interesting like concept is just like this, the concept of like arbitrage, of being not so much a marketplace. I think marketplaces are super difficult, having tried to build one myself in the past. But I think being a matchmaker is underrated. So if you look at, especially in the D2C space right now, most D2C brands aren't competing with each other at all. But they're, so like there's no reason they couldn't collaborate for the, the same customers. And it would be like super beneficial for them to do that. But D2C companies very rarely collaborate. And someone like that is a massive opportunity that someone who enjoys the space and knows it well could completely like arbitrage and create like a win-win-win situation where they, you know, they take a cut of that. I think that's something that like I would be definitely looking into if what's the word like single, I guess. You also have a course that's done quite well. Could you talk through that experience of for anyone that's starting a course, like advice you would give on coming up with the content and then how to even launch it? Because I think it helps that you have yourself a, a decent audience. I don't know if you had that before or after the course, but any advice you'd give? Yeah, I had no audience when I started the course. I'd been heads down working on my other businesses and literally that was the first time I popped up and I was like well what do I do now let's go on the internet and talk to, to strangers and try and help people avoid making the same mistakes that, that I've made and I think with the course it's the same thing right you have to really want to help people you have to be good at what you do but most importantly uh, you have to be able to like with we're talking about with marketing before the most important thing is you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the person you're trying to help of your customer of your audience and to be able to see the world through their eyes Right. So my course, which I'm in the process of winding down just because I don't have time with SparkLoop anymore. It's all about teaching founders, mainly technical founders, how to do sales. Uh, don't go and sign up because there isn't probably going to be another version. So there's <laughs> nothing to go and see. But yeah, I mean, it, it went well. Right, We did six figures in the first year, which I think for a course is, is pretty good off, off no audience. And I would say the reason it did well is because I understood the audience, right? So the very first time that I did it, I, I wasn't doing this on purpose, but it turns out it was a really good decision. I just said, I'm helping these like couple of people online with sales questions. They all seem to have the same problems. 
why don't I just like, you know, post in a couple of places and start this like a, a live workshop that I'll do with a couple of people. And they can pay like 150 bucks and come in for two or three hours of stuff that we'll do together over a couple of weeks and get this feedback. And I prepared slides and stuff based on what I thought they would need help with. And then we got on the calls and most of it was Q&A. And it turns out that the things that I thought they were struggling with, the, the ways that I thought I should be explaining it to them was just absolutely wrong. It was actually the way that most sales books are written, like most other courses on sales are done. And it turns out that was just like, it did not resonate with them at all. It did not help them. So being able to listen and do like customer discovery on a live version of the course and do it more as coaching was super impactful. And that enabled me to really understand how to sell to them, but also what I should be like, how to most effectively help them become good at sales and why they wanted to become good at sales. And that made it super easy for the second and third version of the course later in the year to, to put something together that was pretty good, I think. Wow. I love how you iterate and I love how specific you are with the course because I think people could be afraid, oh, this isn't going to go to a big enough audience. I need to make it something that has this big TAM or whatever that may be. But by niching down and being very specific and hitting on a very real pain point, if someone has that pain point, I got to think that conversion rates can be really strong because you're speaking to them. How were you able to get, I mean, six figures is pretty impressive in a year. What were some things that helped you get to that level of scale? I mean, referrals definitely helped with Sparkloop. Firstly, I mean, they made a big difference. I mean, it is a promo, but it did double the sales for sure. And yeah, I think the, the podcast helped. So I, I created a podcast where I was interviewing people and able to leverage their expertise and be seen as an expert by proxy. That helped and also helped me get it in front of the right people. And I think there is something like, if you're on a podcast, then the people who are considering buying from you, they feel in a way like they know you. And I've noticed that if I go to like a startup meetup or something in, in London or in New York or somewhere, and the like, someone's listened to my podcast, they're very friendly with me, like they know me. And it's it's very noticeable. Like they, they feel like they, they know me. And I'm the same way with people that I listen to their podcast. Like I feel like I know them, even though we've maybe talked like for, for five minutes or something. So I think that's a big part of it. And also just like really dialing in on who your audience is, really creating good content that is where they would want to receive that content and charging enough. I was pretty aggressive in the pricing. I was charging $2,000 per person for the first first two versions of the course. And it doesn't take too many customers with that to get to, to it takes 50 customers to get to six figures. We can do the math. I always like asking this question, what is the nicest thing anyone has done for you in your professional career? I don't know. I mean, I genuinely think probably someone has, people do nice things for me all the time and I don't understand why. And that's what I love about being in business. And that's especially something I love about Twitter is people I don't know that they will just take a chance on you and super generous. And I think that's something that's really nice about the indie hacker space or the bootstrapper space, especially if you lean into it and go to these like micro confs and things like that. People are just so generous. I imagine like in, in, in all like sincerity that probably the nicest thing someone has ever done for me and the most impactful, uh, I probably don't even know that they've done it. I'm sure it's like a word like in the ear behind my back that I didn't even realize had happened. So it's super difficult to call out just one specific thing. I mean, Nathan Barry at ConvertKit, for example, we weren't like, we were very early on with Sparkly when they decided to throw their weight behind us and they didn't do that much research into us. We didn't know each other that well before. So, I mean, that's the leap of faith that I think is, is really cool that someone would take on us. Early customers, just, I don't know, just, I think there are, it happens literally every day that people just are super kind and super generous with their time and will jump on a podcast, no questions asked, just to, to help other people. I think that's a really nice thing that we have that kind of in the, 
the bootstrapper space that you don't really see in a lot of other industries. I know that's kind of like a wishy-washy, it's, it's a wishy-washy answer. It's not, it's not a great one, but I, 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 there's no like one example of like someone, like, I don't think like changing my life with kindness. I think it's just like, <laughs> I'm just overwhelmed. That, like every day people are so helpful. Yeah, all those little things can add up. Well, even you just jump on this podcast after one email. So I appreciate that. But no, this is awesome. This is really cool. I actually love your half-baked startup idea. Some of those might need to be fully baked. So well done. But where can people, where would you like to point people if they want to find out more about you or more about Sparkloop? Where should they go? Yeah, if you have a email list, probably not a tiny one. So 5,000 subscribers, 5,000 email contacts are up then I think you should definitely check out Sparkloop at least have a look and see if it might be the right thing for you at some point in the future. And you can find us at sparkloop.app. If you would like to reach out to me, a great place to do that is on Twitter at Louis Nichols with an underscore at the end. And otherwise, if you're more of an emailer, then just Louis at sparkloop.app would be great. I'm always happy to help and give feedback and try and pay it forward. Well, Louis, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks, Jim. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthIt.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.